0: The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Spotify for Podcasters. Hi, friends. This is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. Spotify for Podcasters is now available for use by anyone out there who's interested in producing, monetizing, and distributing their podcast. You can have access to some of the best tools in the industry using Spotify for Podcasters. Go to podcasters.spotify.com for more details we Chemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McRoy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to discuss The Call to Chaos. Tonight, we'll be reading from an essay by one Mr. James Shelby Downard, the late, great James Shelby Downard, of the same name. It's called The Call to Chaos, From Atom to Atom, by way of the Hornada del Muerto, written by James Shelby Downard. Sometime in the early 1990s, if I'm not mistaken. I think that is when he wrote this. Shortly before his death, unfortunately. But uh, at any rate, that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. We're going to get straight into the reading. Mr. The United States, which long has been called a melting pot, should more descriptively be called a witch's cauldron wherein the hierarchy of the grand architect of the universe arranges for ritualistic crimes and psychopolitical psychodramas to be performed in accordance with a master plan. The ritual crimes are principally oriented to sex and death. In the cultists' homage to their zany notions of the universal spirit that created the world, and also as a rite of passage employed to catapult the human race into the much-trumpeted New Age, known also as the Novus Ordo Seclorum to the Freemasons who devised this country and its currency. Grand Architect of the Universe, sometimes abbreviated G-A-O-T-U, is cult lingo for the aforementioned universal spirit, the creator of all. Important is In the hierarchy of these New Age rites, are the call to chaos and the killing of the king ceremonials. Both embody the use of the scapegoat. I'm going to pause for a second there, folks. If you haven't gone back and listened to some of the coverage that we've done here on the killing of the king, I suggest you do that. The Kennedy assassination was one such ritual, as demonstrated by James Shelby Downard and Michael Hoffman. In the book, King Kill 33. So with that being the case, we see these are two important ceremonies, ceremonial things that James Shelby Downard identified, and he was way ahead of his time with this stuff. He understood many things that most of us still today are just grasping at straws to get a hold of. He understood some of these things on a very deep level. Now, we're just in the infancy of our studies of these ideas. But he understood some things. He had an intuition for things that many people do not have. And he was exposed to a lot of this stuff in his lifetime and understood very well who the controllers of this world were and the things that they believed and how they acted upon those beliefs. And this, of course, is the most important facet of the whole thing. You see... When you understand the true nature of who these people are who control things, it gives you a little bit of an idea as to what you're dealing with. And the nature of these people, let's face it, they're not your friends. They're not in your corner. They're not here to help you. They're out for their own personal gains. And they serve the dark side, if you want to call it that. Let's go ahead and continue reading in the work here, though. I don't want to get too far astray from James Shelby Downard's thoughts here, because he's spot on with so many things, way ahead of his time, even more so today. If he were alive today, I think he would probably be a very dangerous force to these people. But let's continue on. The concept of transference to a scapegoat is the most important among the superstitious manipulations just behind the scenes of the New Age sham scam. The death of human scapegoats, and he says in parentheses here, pharmacos, and this was a designation given to them, the scapegoat in many of the ancient systems, pharmacos, is a symbolic catharsis of a supposed type of pollution, which are described as the perverse or negative phase of the two basic life forces, the Yetzer HaRa and Yetzer HaTov. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So, Shelby Downard here is drawing from some of these ideas associated with the Kabbalah and the Sefer Yetzirah. Uh, so we have Yetzer hara and Yetzer hatav describing these two basic life forces. Let's continue on because I think he will designate as to what those things are in, in plain terms for you. This theological dualism holds that there are two antagonistic forces, the male and the female, which became one. Though the Yetzer Hatav influence is deemed to be good and the Yetzer Hara is said to be bad, there exist no absolutes or value judgments in Scottish Rite Masonry, whose dogma contends that equilibrium is the harmony that results from the analogy of contraries. And that's a direct quote from the Freemasons that he gives there. He has it in quotation marks. I'll read that quote again so you understand, because this is what is believed by the occultists. Equilibrium is the harmony that results from the analogy of contraries. So it's all about finding this balance. It's homeostasis, which is an important idea when you get to cybernetics principles. Homeostasis, and I think I've covered this in the past other places. If I haven't covered it on air, in broadcasts, I've certainly covered it in my books. Homeostasis. So this is what they believe. It's all about having that balance, There's the male and the female counterparts, and all things are broken up along these lines. If you go back and look at the old Hermetic Principles, you'll see how you have these opposite polarities, and it's all about finding the equilibrium between those in the view of the secret schools. But let's continue on. When the balance of the opposed influences becomes upset... They are equalized by transference rituals and sex death rites, which uses human scapegoats. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So, this, according to James Shelby Downard here, is what many of these rituals are all about. What many of these rituals are all about. It's about when these balances, these opposing balanced forces, become upset that they're equalized through these transference rituals. So all these things that we see happening in the modern era here, relating to these gender identities and such, they relate to this principle, whether you want to admit to that or not, whether you want to believe that or not, and whether it's true or not, doesn't matter. That's what these dark occultists who run this place believe, and that's why they are doing the things they're doing. So in their viewpoint, it seems the male energies or the masculine attributes, the masculine energies have had prominence for far too long. So they're trying to balance the scales here, but they're not doing a very good job of it. Let's put it that way. They're not doing a very good job of it because what's happened is you wind up with this militant feminism and also this gender fluidity movement that confuses the two, confuses these two very different energies and blurs the lines between them. And all this does is create more chaos and confusion. It does not create equilibrium. So they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot with how they're trying to achieve this goal. But that's what the ritualism is about here. So that's why they have all of these weird... uh, musicians and Hollywood elites and stuff up prancing around on stage in devil outfits and why Lady Gaga does all the ridiculous stuff she does and why they push and promote nonsensical things like a trans influencer promoting beer. I mean, come on. All this stuff is ridiculous on the face of it, but it has a reason behind it. And it's an occult reason. And most people are not comfortable admitting that, but it certainly is at the core of all of it. But let's continue on. I don't want to get side trailed with that thought, but I just thought I'd point that out. So when he's talking about these two forces, the Yetzer Hatav and the Yetzer Hara, think about that simply as the masculine and the feminine energies inherent in all things, the polarizing forces. Let's continue though. The existence of the hierarchy's secret combination that wields the invisible government was possibly first made known in the United States by the Mormon Church many years ago when the group avowedly opposed Freemasonry, but nothing came of these disclosures made over the years by a few well-informed and brave people. The secret combination, I'm going to pause for a moment, this term is all in capital letters here, in Downard's writing here. So remember that term, the secret combination. The secret combination is dominated to a great extent by Freemasonry, which is also termed speculative masonry, and progenitor of a number of variant organizations such as Scottish Rite Masonry, York Rite, Grand Orient, and others. These organizations are similar up to a point. The first three degrees of initiatory ceremony are essentially the same, and all the brethren are thought to be bound by a so-called mystic tie. The mystic tie is a mysterious influence that is said by Masons, quote, to link men of all religions and of the most discordant opinions, uniting them into a brotherhood, end quote. This tie wends its way around many societies, secret and otherwise, clubs, labor unions, churches, armed forces, police forces, and government bureaus. Even the familiar necktie is a cryptic offshoot of this same brethren of the mystic tie. So zap, you may be a mason, even if you don't know it. Gonna pause for a second here, folks. Did you ever wonder how the idea of the necktie became popularized? I had seen it described by some. They claimed that it was invented initially as a type of a napkin for if you were eating, you would use it. You would wear the necktie and be able to wipe your mouth with it while you were eating to avoid getting sloppy, to have proper manners. I had heard some such nonsense like that, but this actually makes more sense. It's the tie that binds, the mystic tie of the Brethren, and that's how this wound up attached to important corporate jobs, places of influence and power, a status symbol of sorts. This is directly why. Let's go ahead and continue with the reading, though. Masons describe their influence as, quote, a sacred and inviolable bond that gives an altar to men of all religions, end quote. That altar, stained with semen and blood, is the repository for Masonic fertility and death and resurrection rituals, just as in the old mystery religions. You won't find the occult sciences of Freemasonry in any college catalogs, though its concepts permeated the adepts of the Royal Society, who presided over the birth of formal science in the 17th century England. The elite style of inquiry and praxis, called the science of symbolism, is preserved deep within the heart of Freemasonry, even today. But quick as an imagined wink of the old all-seeing eye, this symbol sigh can become the blackest sorcery, as we will see. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So within the secret schools, within Masonry primarily, along with many of the others, we have this science of symbolism. This is where it's hidden, and we see there are certain groups in this world, like the Royal Society, that have overseen the formal birth of our modern science in the 17th century. This is where it stems from. It comes directly from these secret groups. They established the praxis of our modern science. Let's continue on. When science became involved with sorcery and symbolism, the three made for a mystical ménage à trois. The linking of cosmic male and female is the magic principle behind the Kabbalah, the major metaphysical tradition behind the great work of alchemy. In alchemy, the universal power that permeates everything is composed of two opposite principles that are by way of a cosmic marriage made one. The result of this quasi-sexual encounter, matter, or prima materia, was created, and it in turn manifested a vital force, also called a vis vita. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So once again, we have this dynamic at play here. These two opposite principles coming together in what he says a cosmic marriage. This would be an alchemical wedding or an alchemical marriage. The first portion thereof is matter, or prima materia, as he calls it here. And the other one is vital force. So you have this merging of vital force and matter. Let's continue on, and we'll see, because he breaks it down a little further here for you. From this matter and energy, Adam Kadmon, Hebrew for the primordial Adam, or first man, emerged embodying the cosmic masculine and feminine powers. Adam Kadmon was an androgyne, a bi guy or ACDC type, who, according to the myth, was unhappy with his bisexual makeup and so threw out the female part and thus became all male in preparation for creation of the universe. As they say, a hard man is good to find. Next, according to the myth, The powers, or Sephiroth, by which God is alleged to manifest himself, and it says in parentheses, or herself, kind of in jest here, on earth, shone from his eyes, breaking the bottle, and it says in parentheses, pressure vessel, designed to receive the mighty light whammy of the Sephiroth. So Adam, the reformed faggot, is held to be the head honcho of creation and the gullum of God. I'm going to pause for a second here, folks. Aside from James Shelby Downard's humor here, there's some important concepts to be garnered from this paragraph here. So, putting aside all the jokes, we see, according to the myth, according to the beliefs of the mystery schools, the powers called Sephiroth, by which God is alleged to manifest himself on earth, shown from his eyes, that's an important idea, The eyes are the window to the soul, after all, right? So, shown from his eyes. And it says, breaking the bottle, or the pressure vessel, designed to receive the mighty light of the Sephiroth. So, we have here this creation. And this creation can be described as a bottle, or a pressure vessel. An alchemical flask, if you will according to this account. So you may wonder where you could get the idea from that perhaps the world we live in is akin to a giant alchemical flask. Well, this derives from the Mystery School teachings as well. They mention it, maybe not in those exact words, as we see here, but this is part of the belief system that was brought forward. This comes from Kabbalah as well and some of the alchemical concepts attached to it. So we have this pressurized vessel, this bottle, that is the creation into which God breathed his sephiroth, or his power, to make it manifest as physical form, material, world, matter. And in so doing, God created Adam, and it is said here, the golem of God interesting concepts being touched upon here. If you go back and you look at the old alchemical sciences, especially going back and looking at Kabbalah and how it relates to this, the Gollum's an important idea. Back in Jewish mysticism, the golem. So there's an association being made here, and it may be a loose association, and we'll see as we continue on. Maybe you'll pick up on the nuance of it, or maybe you won't. Hard to say for sure. I can't actually describe it in actual words that I could think of to convey the idea to you, the importance of the idea, but it is certainly there. And maybe, James Shelby Downard here as we continue, we'll break this down a little further to make you understand better, make me understand better as well. Let's continue. Such antique anthropomorphism can be modernized somewhat. The idea of a universe composed of competing masculine and feminine powers can be explained in electrical terms. As a result of the union between the polar male, or the positive or protonic energy, and female, the negative or electronic energy, primordial matter, and it says in parentheses, hydrogen atoms maybe, with a question mark, was produced. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So this dynamic energy... These two opposing dynamic energies, when combined together in this alchemical flask, that is, the universe, the world, however you want to view this place we exist in, man himself, when this happened, these two opposing energies, for lack of a better way to describe it, they began to combine together to merge into primordial matter. And he says here, hydrogen atoms, perhaps, if you want to think of this in a more modern scientific way, That would seem to make sense, wouldn't it? So, the combination of these two energetic forces are what cause manifestation of matter. Energy and matter are interchangeable. You see, they could be converted from one to the other. This, I think, has been proven out in science in more recent times. But... That's neither here nor there. Let's continue on because we're going to get into some more of the important concepts here that go along with it. The separation of the male and female components of primordial matter can perhaps be thought of as a divorce and a return of the two to their pre-creational chaos-inhabiting single state. The infinitesimal quantity of primordial matter is called an atom. The formula of the parity between primordial matter and primordial energy is written, or can be written, in the Einsteinian equation E equals mc squared. Just a new label on an old bottle, seems to me, Downard says in parentheses here. Well now, the great architect of the universe gang... On that fine summer day in 1945, with the help of their scientific sorcerer's apprentices, fissionated atoms and thus broke up the sacred marriage at the basis of creation, and in so doing violated their own supreme law of the universe, upsetting the equilibrium apple cart of the cosmos. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So, of course, he's referring to the detonation of the Manhattan Project, the nuclear bomb... Regardless of what your thoughts are on this, it has certainly had a major influence on the modern era. But let's continue reading on here. So the thing is, before we get back to the reading, though, he's saying they violated their own supreme law of the universe in so doing, in creating this device, this weapon, in doing this very thing. They violated their own laws The supreme law of the universe. They violated the natural order. Let's put it that way. So, whether you think there's any merit in this or not, I think there is some value to be garnered here. We do have what they call nuclear power plants. Now, it's the weaponization thereof that becomes questionable in my mind. But this is something that's been done. And according to Downard here, he says this is a violation. Of their own supreme law of the universe. And if you think of it in terms of this separation of the masculine and feminine energies, the ones that bring about equilibrium in the system as they view it, this could be to some degree maybe a truth. But let's continue reading and let's see if we can garner some more meaning in this. Alchemy has a very important place in Masonic dogma. Sex magic is very much a component of that belief, albeit with certain changes in terminology. For example, the object of the masculine and feminine powers of the universe is symbolized by the Nagari, an androgynous dragon which figured prominently in alchemical transmutation efforts. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. The Nagari, or the Nagas, you may have heard them referred to as The Nagas, this is a serpent being described in ancient mythologies. And was it an actual being, or was it just something symbolic here, as it's used in alchemy? The dragon, it's described as the dragon. And of course the dragon can be different colors according to whatever alchemical working you're doing. You'll need to understand what the different colors of the dragon means. And they do the same thing with other symbols, like that of the lion. Like a green lion is something different than the black lion. There's so many different nuances and subtleties that go into understanding some of the alchemical language. Much of it still escapes me, I'll be honest. I don't have enough experience in trying to translate these alchemical works to be able to understand what the true intention of the meaning behind each symbol is, because it varies from working to working, and that's where it becomes problematic. But they do use these as symbolic references. It's a symbol representing something else, so it's an androgynous dragon figure that is used here in alchemical transmutation efforts. Let's continue reading, though. Surprisingly, some alchemists in their attempted metallic conversions were actually trying to divorce the cosmic she and he, but without knowing what they were doing or recognizing the inherent danger. It remained for the scientific adepts of the current era to finally accomplish the dire task. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So, what Downard contends here, and I don't know if it's correct or not, but what he contends here is those alchemists who were attempting to transmute lead into gold back in the day, the ones doing the metallic workings with alchemy, were attempting to do something similar here without realizing it, that they were attempting to divorce these two energetic principles from one another, the feminine and the masculine, or separating the proton from the electron, if you want to go back to the analogy of the atom here. And this is what Downard suggests is the ultimate goal of the alchemical process. I don't know if I agree with that, but I certainly see where he's going with it, and he makes a very good point with this whole thing. So he says here the modern scientific adepts of the current era finally accomplished the dire task of doing so with the invention of the atomic bomb. That's what he's speculating here. Let's go ahead and read on. In his Ordinal of Alchemy, Thomas Norton, an 14th-15th century alchemist of Bristol, England, writes, This art must ever be secret be, the cause whereof is this, as ye may see. If the one evil man had thereof all his will, all Christian peace he might easily spill. And with his pride he might pull down rightful kings and princes of renown. End quote. This is all very reminiscent of the Masonic precept, quote, There is in nature one most potent force by means whereof a single man who could possess himself of it and would know how to direct it could revolutionize and change the face of the world. End quote. I'm gonna pause there for a moment, so once again, I think Downard is inferring that the creation of the atomic bomb in 1945 achieved this alchemical goal. And that seems to be, to me, a bit of a misnomer, in my estimation. But he does make a point. I don't think that's what the true alchemy is about. But it is a misuse of alchemy, Most certainly that has been done here. If it functions in the way they claim, even if it doesn't, even if it functions in the way that we use it to generate nuclear energy, then we have an actual force here that can be recognized. We have something going on with this type of science, if you want to call it that. It's a modern type of science. I don't think it directly relates to the old alchemical processes. It's the inversion thereof, and that's why it's destructive. That's why it's a destructive process. But alchemy, when used rightly, can be a creative process. It's about death and rebirth, creation, destruction and rebirth, regeneration. And this has only been used for the one purpose, Of alchemy, And that's the destructive purpose. That's where in the perversion of it comes in. And that's what I think he's pointing out here. But he seems to think that that's its sole purpose from what I could read here. I could be wrong. This gentleman knew an awful lot more than I do. So who am I to say? But I'm just offering my opinion from the things that I know and I've seen and I've read and I understand. I do reserve the right to be wrong about all of it, as always, but (laughs) we are all entitled to our opinion, and we all have our biases on certain things. I'm no different. I'm sure Downard was no different. But he had a view into things that I am not privy to. So, with that being said, maybe he knew a little something more than what I do. Let's continue on with the reading here, though. During the Renaissance, from the 14th through 16th centuries, people known as humanists discovered arcane truths in the Greek and Roman myths and mystery religions, as well as in the occult sciences of astrology, hermeticism, and Kabbalism. Convinced that the key to all these enigmas lay in Egyptian hieroglyphs not yet translated, the humanists began a long-running effort to reconcile the ancient faiths with Christianity to create a universal religion that would sell worldwide. The fundamental concept of this universal religion was the post- was the postulate that all forms of existence emanate from the same universal power, and they all consequently seek a mystical reunion with that power. Alongside went the magical or theurgic Masonic belief that enlightened persons, and it says in parentheses here, Illuminati, can communicate with the powerhouse, powerhouse is capitalized, folks, just for reference here, can communicate with the powerhouse and by so doing gain control of the hidden forces of nature. And he says in parentheses here, It may be meaningful that certain Freemasons once called themselves Illuminati, and the name was so used on their macaronic Latin diplomas to signify such a wired-in hotshot. This wasn't going to be any free lunch, of course. There was to be a priesthood or bureaucracy involved, and the priests were to have all the esoteric theurgic goodies, the amount in accordance with the individual's degree. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So once again, Downard is pointing out in a humorous manner here the way in which these secret societies operate, the way in which the Illuminati operate, and the Freemasons... They love their degrees and their titles. They have a big, long, fancy-sounding title for every degree within the system. So anytime somebody finishes a degree, they are bestowed this title. They love their titles. They love the bureaucracy of it all. And this is all part of, in my estimation, what is the ultimate weakness of these dark occultists who run things in this world. They're so puffed up of ego, and they're so very hung up on the idea of having all these fancy titles, degrees, and confirmations of themselves, that they lose sight of simpler things. They lose sight of the fact that perhaps there are some people out there who haven't been through their degree system or their training of their secret organizations who can understand some of the same things they do without having any of the years of training. And this, once they realize this, terrifies them. They are terrified when they are called out. When you know the same things they know, and you tell them that you know it, and you reveal the secret, because you're not bound by any stupid oath like they are, it makes them nervous. And sometimes they don't know how to respond to that. And that's why it's important to study this stuff and know this stuff. Because if you call them out for what they are, call them out for what they're doing, oftentimes they have no retort, and they retreat, and they will stop whatever it is they're attempting to do, Because, you see, they like to hide behind the veil. Now, they like to make it sound like it's all mystical and that it's all for the benefit of humanity, that they do all these good works from behind the veil to help humanity along, because we're just backwards and we're not there, evolutionarily speaking, in the spiritual sense. And they're so much more sophisticated than us. No, so much better. So they help us from behind the veil because, you know, it's not about their pride or their ego or anything. It's about helping the race to achieve this next phase in human evolution. At least that's their surface claim. But you know why they really hide behind the veil, folks? Because they're cowards. And they know that what they're doing isn't on the up and up. And if they ever get caught... There'll be hell to pay. That's why they hide behind the quote-unquote veil. That's why they put all of these organizations, these philanthropic groups and quasi-governmental groups and think tanks together. They gather the brightest minds to come up with ideas and plans for them, and they give the confirmation or approval or disapproval from behind the veil as to what to roll with, and they put their little puppets out there in places in places of prominence and have them fulfill their will with this stuff. And oftentimes the figureheads we see out there, the ones we recognize as the power brokers in this world, they're not. They're just the scapegoat, as Downard as Downard alluded to earlier here. The scapegoat. They're the scapegoat, whether they realize it or not. They're useful idiots in many regards. Some of them willfully serve in this capacity, but others are just useful idiots that have been put in this position and they're completely oblivious that they're being manipulated in this way. But they're figureheads. Little more than that. It's the scapegoat idea. So that the ones that are really running the show are safe behind the veil where they hide and they cower. And they cower. Let's continue on here, though. Nowadays, we have folks calling themselves secular humanists who appear to be retreading universal religion in New Age format. That Endeavor has major backing from the secret sector and other individuals manipulated by the great architect of the universe, Mafia. They haven't let the secret out yet, though, that the New Age was not entered as planned, and that tomorrow might even have been canceled. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. This idea in and of itself is hugely important because this is letting the cat out of the bag. I'm going to read that again, let you ponder on it a little, and maybe offer my opinion here. They haven't let the secret out yet, though, that the New Age was not entered as planned, and that tomorrow might even have been canceled. So let me pause there again. The New Age didn't come off as they had planned. Didn't come about as planned. So they're scrambling, they're regrouping, they're trying to gain as much ground as they can as quickly as possible because their plans have become all messed up on them. They had a timeline in place, they wanted to have a lot of this stuff done by the turn of the millennium. They had to push it back. Now they have Agenda 2030 instead of Agenda 21. And, of course, Agenda 2030 is not going according to plan either. So they'll wind up pushing that back, and there will be some new agenda, like probably Agenda 2070 or something stupid like that. Watch and see, or 2071, maybe. I think that's the name of the one of the policy think tank papers I've seen. It was uh, Governance in the Year 2071. Y- yes, they, they write those things, folks. This is an actual paper. Uh, maybe Jason and I will take that one apart one night on Secrets of Saturn, if we haven't done so already. But there's a policy think tank paper that says what governance could look like in the year 2071 and some of the things they expect to come about by that time. So they do play the long game with this stuff. But you need to understand here, they mess up. They have messed up. They continue to mess up. And they are messing up. Even though they've made some huge strides... With their planning, the New Age didn't snap into place as they had originally envisioned it. And I think this is part and parcel of what's going on with the hijacking of this New Age concept by them. And how they're trying to leverage the energetic principles attached with the idea of Aquarius and leverage it more towards the idea of Capricorn. Now this might not make a lick of sense to you if you haven't listened in the past or don't know some of the mystical context involved with that concept. But this explains why the sudden shift in society over the course of the past 22 or 23 years, it's 22 years now since that fateful day in 2001, the blackjack presented... And now we are fully entrenched in clown world, as it were, but uh, (laughs) that's neither here nor there. But let's continue on. I don't want to get hung up on that side principle, but that is a hugely important idea because Downard says here, the new age was not entered as planned and that tomorrow might even have been canceled. I don't think tomorrow's been canceled, folks. Tomorrow can't be canceled. That's another of the big secrets. These people would like you to think they have oh so much power. But you know what? We have some guarantees in this world. We're guaranteed the sun will come up tomorrow. You could take that to the bank. This is something they don't have any power over, but they would like you to believe that they do. Of course, they could skew your perception of the reality we live in. So maybe the sun doesn't come up tomorrow, but maybe we spin around it in such a way that it appears to come up tomorrow. You see the games that could be played here, but at any rate, this is some kind of a thing that they have no power over. Nature happens how it happens, and there's no disputing that. We have natural laws that are inherent in this place that cannot be violated, and they cannot be altered, but these people seem to have the hubris to think either that they can alter it, or... or... They simply lie about being able to alter it. And that's the big secret. They think they're all-powerful. They would like you to believe that they're all-powerful. Simple fact of the matter is they are not. And I'll actually go to the Bible for this. For this concept. You see, in the Bible, the devil's not all-powerful. Satan is not all-powerful. He's not all-knowing and all-seeing like the Creator is. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. Why do you think we have the surveillance state? You see, if the evil powers of this world that seek to dominate this world and become the gods of this place, if they were truly omniscient or omnipotent, if they were able to see all and know all, then they wouldn't need to have any such of a concept. But this is why this is pushed so hard, because the devil has no power in that regard. He is not omnipotent. He does not know everything. He does not see everything, cannot see everything. That's one of the reasons for the advent of this antichrist system or this beast system that's coming about, this panopticon control grid, this electronic surveillance state, invasive surveillance state because they want to be able to actually read your mind and control your mind at that level. That's what they're working towards and that's why they're using this technology to do that because this is not something as far as a power goes that the devil, Satan, Lucifer, whatever you want to call this entity has or this force if you want to refer to it as a force, this evil force This adversary, adversarial force in this place, it is not all-knowing, all-seeing. But it would like to be in order to fully mimic the creator. And it needs to be if it wants to be the god of this place. So these people, by proxy, even if you want to look at this symbolically, this is what they need to be the gods of this place. It's a cheap knockoff. Anyway, that's enough of my little side tangent. Let's continue reading here. You see, according to an age-old prophecy, cosmic fire, or ekpurosis in the original Greek, is going to nix all tomorrows. The forecast was made by Heraclitus, circa 535 to 475 BC, the weeping philosopher, and boy, wouldn't he have a crying jag nowadays. However, even if tomorrow does come, with most mortals having been brought together and made one without individuality in their togetherness, they'll function as parts of cybernetic mind control system. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks, just to show you how far ahead of the curve Downard was here. Unbeknownst to me, until just recently, he was talking about cybernetics and its relationship to alchemy way back when. Way back when, when he was doing this stuff, he understood understood what was coming. He understood the notion that is transhumanism, even though it wasn't really mentioned much as a thing back during that time in the 1990s, or prior to that, when he did the bulk of his writing and the bulk of his research. He understood this was coming. He wrote it down here in this essay and some other places. But there it is. I'm going to read that again. So he says here, however, even if tomorrow does come, with most mortals having been brought together and made one, without individuality in their togetherness, they'll function as parts of a cybernetic mind control system. Others, whose wills haven't been completely reamed out, will be confined and regulated in workplaces... With digitalized biotelemetry implants Going to pause for a moment there, folks Yes, you heard that right These are all the very same things I've been telling people And I've been researching for many years now And like I said, unbeknownst to me, up until just recently Downard was talking about this Way back this kind of gives me a little bit of validation in the things that I've looked at and seen and been able to piece together, especially when it comes to the mystical aspect to it. This uh, metaphysical type aspect that we have. What I call, what I like to call the synchromystic metadata, that aspect of it. Downard saw it. There's others that see it. Sometimes people don't know how to put it to words. I think Downer did an excellent job here. There's a lot of people that see in this way now. Wasn't so much so in the past when Downard was doing this. He was kind of a pioneer of looking at the world through this lens. But that being the case today, because of the foundational work he did here, pointing out many of these things, and putting them to words in a way people could understand. Because of that, now there's many today that are just now beginning to see things how they truly are. And a lot of that has to do with being able to look at it through this type of lens. Let's continue reading here. So we see he speaks about this cybernetic mind control system. And how the people whose wills haven't been completely reamed out will be confined and regulated in workplaces with digitalized biotelemetry implants. So we're talking about the social credit score. Do you see how much foresight this guy had? Let's read on. So he says next, soccer blue. If such a fantastically hideous situation is the alternative, wouldn't the cosmic fire option be preferable so we could at least go out in a blaze of glory, one wonders? <laughs> so I'm going to pause there. He had a unique sense of humor, for sure. So he's talking about this idea from Heraclitus that the cosmic fire, or ekpyrosis purosis in the original Greek, was going to destroy all the tomorrows. And perhaps this Greek notion of the ekpyrosis, as it was called here. Perhaps this is what Downard associated with the atomic bomb, the development of that, this cosmic fire. Maybe that's the vantage point he comes from with that. So the options here were this madness of the cybernetic police state, or nuclear destruction. (laughs) That's the way he was looking at it. So those were the two options he was looking at for that and trying to decide which one sounds more desirable. I don't think we have to go either of those routes, folks. We can still change our future, make it better. The future is not written yet. It is what we make of it. And the things we do now will affect that. So we need to reject much of what's being presented to us by these people in positions of power in this world. And the more of us that do that and reject these things, the better off we will be. We need to organize. We need to self-organize. Within our communities, make a better world, one community at a time, rather than this globalist mentality, as it's been described, this centralized control. We don't need that. We need communities working together for their own basic needs and their well-being and maybe connecting with other communities for like purposes, helping, supporting each other, rather than centralized control from the top down. It would be totally different. Let's read on here. Consider that the secret society, which became the nucleus of the Office of Strategic Services, the Central Intelligence Agency, Octopus, was making biotelemetry implants in unsuspecting people as early as 1933. After the operations, the victims were kept drugged for a time and then were brainwashed. The OSS, or CIA, is written that way because when the former became the latter, they changed the name but not the facts. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So James Shelby Downard is here pointing out that the Office of Strategic Services, this was the precursor of the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, they morphed into the CIA shortly after World War II, and actually it was a Nazi operative, a German operative, who was put in charge of that, named Reinhard Gellin. And they were given carte blanche control over this intelligence agency in the U.S., (laughs) <laughs> uh, all this history is very much well documented people don't know it though but you have to go look so Reinhardt Gellin was the guy who helped morph the OSS into the CIA and had a lot of influence internationally let's continue reading though because that's a subject for another day so Downer goes on here he says I believe the implants were first activated by touching the skin with a device similar to an electronic prod, but which actually was a symbolical phallus. The early implants were made to stimulate the pedundal nerve, which triggered so that the sexually excited and amnesiac drugged victims could be used in the sex circuses of the OSS or CIA secret order. Those victims were not infrequently operated on while anesthetized by morphine and scopolamine, which produce analgesia and amnesia, or twilight sleep, according to the esotericists. They, too, were brainwashed after healing. This evil program, supposedly for the sake of national security, was oriented to the cult of the great architect of the universe. The practice of masonry, which revolves entirely around the science of symbolism, involves signs, emblems, words, and their origins, meanings, and manipulation. It is largely an outgrowth of gematria, the Kabbalistic numeration of Hebrew letters, and the supposed magical meanings of those turkey tracks. Gematria is considered applicable to other languages and indeed may have originated with the Greeks. Montague Summers points out in Witchcraft and Black Magic, quote, It is mere waste of time and hair-splitting to attempt to draw minute and caviling distinctions, to chop up words and quibble and subdivide, to argue that technically and etymologically a sorcerer differs from a witch, a witch from a necromancer, a necromancer from a Satanist. In actual fact and practice, all these names are correlative, it in use, synonymous, and quote. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So Montague Summers, in his book Witchcraft and Black Magic, says that any of these names that you give to these people, it doesn't matter. They all do the same things. And that is winner, winner, chicken dinner right there when it comes down to these secret society groups. Doesn't matter what name they have on themselves or apply to themselves. They all do these same things, no matter what you call it. Call it witchcraft, necromancy, sorcery, Satanism, Whatever you call it, it's all the same thing. Doesn't matter. So all this argument over what is it and how it differs this from that, there's no distinctions or differences. They all teach the same concepts. They might change up what the words are that they use to describe certain things, but that's it. It's all the same concepts at the core. Same thing with all these mystery schools, all these different secret occult fraternities. They all teach the same things. And when you begin to understand this, you know that one of these groups does not have some quote-unquote secret that another doesn't. That one's not any better than the other. They all do the same stuff. They all use the same signs and symbols, numerology, all of these different tools. They all do it. Anyway, let's continue with the reading here. Of paramount importance in all of this thaumaturgy is the mystical toponymy of the geography of witchcraft. The Land of Enchantment, and it says in parentheses, New Mexico, for instance, is a maze of such loaded names, words, signs, and symbols attached to certain key places in an esoteric but logical order. That isn't confusing to those who know the science of symbolism and can adroitly make their way through the labyrinth. For example, there is the Hornada del Muerto, the Journey of the Dead Man, which runs north to south, and El Camino del Diablo, the Devil's Highway, running east to west. They meet just north of the site of the first atomic bomb blast and I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks, at the crossroads. Another important concept in the alchemical processes, the crossroads. So we see here the Hornada del Muerto and the Alcamino Camino del Diablo meet at a crossroads. And this is where the first atomic blast was given. So no doubt There was some type of ritualistic attachment made to this distinction. Whether you believe in the veracity of the atomic bomb or not, that's not important. What's important is the underlying occult meaning or the occult purpose. That's what it's about. So it was at the crossroads that this happened. But let's continue reading here. The Hornada del Muerto may be likened to the peregrination or long journey of the alchemists, and that voyage links up with the all-important killing of the king procedure of alchemy. New Mexico's Hornada begins at El Paso, Texas, although its original starting point was at Teotihuacan, Mexico, according to an old book in the Mexico City Library. Now, Downard goes on to explain here, I believe, however the literary reference designated another Hornada del Muerto, which was supposed to lead from a sacrificial altar at the Teotihuacan temple site to the land of the Bat God, a major deity in Mexican, in Mex mythology that may be roughly equated with the devil. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. The Bat God. Did you wonder why? They used the bat as the animal in question for the whole narrative of the COVID epidemic origin. The COVID pandemic origin. You ever wonder why they used the bat? Well, maybe now we know something. And perhaps you've even seen Mesoamerican cultures, ancient cultures here from these places, They did have a bat god who very much looked like Batman in our modern era. Did you think Batman was a new or newer invention of modern culture? Do you see how deep some of these archetypes run? But in mech's mythology, according here to Downard, the bat god can roughly be equated with the devil. Let's continue reading. The America Hornada begins, however, in an unlikely spot, a run-down old neighborhood of El Paso called Kern Place, near Crazy Cat Mountain. Peter Kern was a turn-of-the-century mason given to consorting with greaser brujos, or witches, in parentheses it says here, of various types, but especially those involved in necromancy. There came a time when Kern started dressing in white robes, and he went to Alaska after the gold rush and started preaching to the Indians there. He eventually took a group of them back to El Paso, and along with some Mexican Toltecs, Kern built a huge ceremonial gate at the entrance to his Kern Place housing development. The structure was a nightmare of esoteric symbolism, which apparently was supposed to represent the, quote, Gate with a thousand doors, end quote. Otherwise known as the Gate of Death. The Angel of Death is said to be Lord of the Gates. There was much interest much to interest this angel at Kern's Gate, positioned at the head of the Journey of Death. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks, the Hornada Del Muerto, the Journey of Death. Now let's continue on here, because next Next, Downard goes to the idea of Trinity, and of course he's referring to the atomic bomb, and we'll see how he makes some connections here. A few miles up the Hornada del Muerto in Mesilla, New Mexico, there, Kern Gate on the Hornada del Muerto, is the Masonic Lodge Hornada Number 70. It was 70 days during which a corpse had to remain, soaking in natron, a native soda, in one of the houses of death of ancient Egypt, in order to become a proper mummy. Natron is found along the Hornada del Muerto, and particularly around the Trinity site, where, just as in the Trona area near California's Death Valley, the mineral is said to have resulted from evaporation of prehistoric inland seas. Trona, of course, is an anagram of Natron. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. Trona, T-R-O-N-A. Trona sounds very much like Corona, doesn't it? Let's keep that in mind, too, as we continue. Trinity is the name of the spot where the world's first atomic device was exploded on July 16, 1945. Conventionally, the process is known as nuclear fission, A splitting of plutonium or uranium atoms to liberate vast energy. But that's too mechanistic and limited of an explanation, especially in view of the total picture of world hanky-panky and crypto-ritualism we've been able to assemble since then. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So now here, Downard is also pointing out the fact that the actual reported physical Function of this is not as important as the esoteric function. Let's continue on. We're taking a different tack and looking upon the event as a bust-up of the sacred marriage, the hieros gamos to the Greeks, of twin cosmic reality principles that formed primordial matter. A divorce that liberates primordial energy, much like the rolling pins, dishes, and profanity flying out the door behind a fleeing hubby in more conventional, meritable blowouts. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So he's talking about... Once again, going back to this principle that he started with. The idea of these two separate forces, the opposing forces, which came together to create all manifestation and matter here in this way. The masculine and the feminine energies. So let's continue on and we'll see what he's talking about here. The symbolism, the symbolism behind all of it is the more relevant portion here. And the more relevant point to the whole alchemical working here. If you want to call it an alchemical working, it's kind of like dark alchemy. Let's be honest. The way that they've done things and inverted the process, call it what you will. But let's continue reading here. Well, I ask you, what more symbolical place could have been found for such a transaction than this Hornada, with all of its link-ups to the alchemical long journey and king-killing rites. Icing the cake is that Devil's Highway, which clips the northwest corner of White Sands Missile Range, some 40 miles from Trinity. Moreover, the town of Hondo is one, the Devil's Highway, and it is along, sorry, the town of Hondo is along the Devil's Highway, and it would be well to note that jinn are reputed to hang out in hondos. Some Japanese believe that a fox genie stays in a hondo in a temple in Japan much of the time. It's an amazingly small world, isn't it? Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So now we see the idea of the jinn, or the genies, Being associated with this town on the Trinity site, the town of Hondo, Jin are said to stay in Hondos, and in Japan, Fox Genie stays in a Hondo, in a temple in Japan, according to the old myths. Let's go ahead and continue reading on. The jinn are big in Mohammed's Koran and readily identifiable as tellurian spirits, which are said to have been created by the same events that produced Adam Kadmon, for they too were born of chaos. Although some allege that all of the jinn were in the bottle that was broken by the might light, the Sephiroth, shining from Adam's eyes. They thus were released from the old bottle, and so are said to be eternal pals of old Adam. I'm gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So, this concept we started the show with here tonight—the idea, Adam Kadmon shining forth this power, this Sephiroth from his eyes, creating this physical world in which we live in—he had broken the flask that contained both the masculine and feminine principles, separated himself from the feminine, and poured it into a new creation, a new flask. And according to this, at the same time were created the jinn. according to these old legends from the Mohammedan perspective. So here you go. So they were created at the same time, Pre-creation, if you want to go that way, prior to the creation of this physical material world in which all things manifest here now, that we are familiar with, they were pre-existent before then, and they were freed from that prison, and now that is why they don't like to be placed in any of these such trappings. That's the allegory here. And it is an allegory. Keep that in mind. Let's continue reading here. It generally is contended by Kabbalists that the jinn make their home with Adam Kadmon, which is sensible for being incorporeal. They take up no room to speak of, and I am sure that as many as want to can sit on the head of a pin, should that ever become necessary. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So, downward. Going back to some of these old philosophies about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Same kind of thing here can be said of the jinn. They are non-corporeal beings. They do not have a physical manifestation in this place. They don't exist here physically. It's a spiritual force. It's something spiritual that can sometimes be detected or interrelate with this world in which we live. But it is not of here and therefore has no actual mass, has no actual form in this place. You see, form, that's the important idea. Let's read on, though. Adam Cadmon's cosmic history, then, has much to do with bottles, and so has that of the djinn. In fact, there are so many stories that hinge on some genie being in a bottle that it might be said that bottles are an occupational hazard of the djinn. You can't believe much of anything about those old djinn stories, though, doggone it, about as much as one can believe that a mighty light or sephiroth shone from Adam's eyes and busted the bottle that has such an important place in Kabbalah cosmogony. Quite frankly, I am inclined to suspect that If he did break that blasted bottle, it was because he got his yesod caught in the neck and had to crack it to get it back out. Little boys sometimes have the same trouble with pop bottles, so some things never change, I guess. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So Downard, once again with his sharp sense of humor, makes this claim. But he says here, bottles have an important distinction in the creation myths. In these different creation traditions, I should stop calling them myths. Clearly, there is a creation, and this creation came about in some way, and people have different stories, different groups have different stories about it. doesn't necessarily make it a myth, maybe an archetype. Uh, I lack a better word for it, so maybe we'll just stick with the word myth. Or we could say tradition. That works as well. But let's go ahead and continue reading here because we'll see the importance of the idea of the bottle, the container. In April 1945, a gigantic steel bottle. Said to have weighed more than four hundred and forty thousand pounds. I'm gonna pause for a moment here, folks. Four hundred and forty thousand, forty-four deaths doors encoded in the very weight of this atomic bomb. Because I know that's what he's talking about. Let's continue reading. So, a gigantic steel bottle, said to have weighed more than four hundred forty thousand pounds and have been feet long by twelve feet, twelve feet long by twelve feet in diameter, arrived on the railroad siding at a town called Belen in Tierra del Encanto, the land of enchantment, New Mexico. After the bottle stayed in Belen for about two months, it was taken on the railroad to Pope, which is nearer the Trinity site, and then was loaded onto a special 64-wheel trailer by way of what is called by project historians a Beckett hitch and then was towed by four powerful tractors to Trinity. A good question would be, did the workers take Holy Communion at Pope or maybe at Trinity? (laughs) Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So once again, his attempt at humor with that. And if you understand the Christian faith, you'll maybe catch a little glimpse of that. Maybe you'll find that a little humorous if you're Catholic. Let's continue on, though. Incidentally, Thomas Becket, who lived in 1118 to 1170, an archbishop of Canterbury, became an opponent of the then king and began defending special privileges of Catholic priests in England. He was assassinated in the Canterbury Cathedral, and his death is often alleged to have been a peculiar one, possibly even ritualistic, and hence loosely associated with a king-killing scenario. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So they used a Beckett hitch to tow this thing to Trinity, to the bomb site. And we're getting the origin of the Beckett hitch, Thomas Beckett, who was alleged to be killed in a king-killing scenario in a ritualistic fashion here, according to Downard. Let's continue reading. Scientists explained that the Trinity Bottle was a pressure vessel designed to contain a partial chain reaction of the atomic device in the event that nuclear nuclear fission of uranium-235 was not sufficient to produce a true atomic explosion. For reasons never convincingly explained, the Trinity bottle was never so used during the actual blast, which took place 800 feet away at ground zero atop a 100-foot steel tower. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So we have this container that was never used during the actual experiment here, the setting off of this bomb. Clearly, this pressure vessel this bottle, must have had some other significance. Let's read on. We are given to understand, then, that despite a vast commitment of time and expense, fantastically expensive custom fabrication custom fabrication in an Ohio steel mill, arduous transportation to Tierra del Encanto over a circuitous rail route, that had tracks strong enough to carry it, and finally, laboriously, inch by inch removal to the Trinity site and suspension above ground from a gigantic block and tackle, the bottle was left idle, as the official Los Alamos laboratory historically, laconically puts it. In April 1946, bombs were finally detonated inside the huge bottle, and holes were said to have been blown in its ends. In 1947, the bottle was buried. In 1951, it was disinterred, tested, and reburied. The curious, one might say mystical, history of the giant bottle came to an end when it was finally uncovered in the late 50s, dusted off, and put on display minus its rounded ends at the Trinity site. One of the major components of the Kabbalah is an explanation of how the universe was created. Apparently, there was a pulling back, or zimzum, by God of His divine substance, the Ein Sof, from a little area where our world now stands, like an immensely corpulent man sucking in his gut in order to get his pants on. God then directed a ray of light into this vacant space, rather like our. Lard bucket letting fly a stream of urine. And this formed the first man, Adam Cadmon, whom we've already met. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So let's get to the core of what this is stating here. So I'll read that portion over again without the words that are used in the other languages to explain it in the Kabbalic traditions. Apparently there was a pulling back by God of his divine substance from a little area where our world now stands, like an immensely corpulent man sucking in his gut in order to get his pants on. So this in the Kabbalah, God left a portion of himself empty and filled it with creation in this way. This is what's claimed here. So a portion of God kind of was broken away and emptied in much the same way that this container was done. The ends were blown off of it. It was left hollowed out. You see a hollowed out container, much like a flask with two open ends. So this is the allegory here being stated, and this is the symbolic nature of, of this container you see it's got kabbalistic ties to it it's very symbolic let's continue reading here it says adam as we know had the peculiar habit of projecting light rays from his forehead and eyes of 10 differing types relating to the 10 spheres of the sephiroth that were to make up all created things These lights fell into vessels, perhaps like chamber pots, in the form of our fatso, but so powerful were Adam's headlights that, quote, now he's going to a Kabbalistic source for this, he's quoting from, quote, the vessels assigned to the upper three sephiroth managed to contain the light that flowed into them, but the light struck the six sephiroth from Hesod to Yesod, all at once and so was too strong to be held by the individual vessels. One after another they broke, the pieces scattering and falling. Nothing, neither the lights nor the vessels, remained in its proper place, and this development, called after a phrase borrowed from the Itrod of the Zohar, quote, the death of the primordial kings, end quote, was nothing less than a cosmic catastrophe. And that's the end of the quote there. So you see, the idea is in the creation traditions associated with Kabbalah here, within the the Zohar and other places, we have this idea of these vessels having been incapable of containing the light, and thus they burst. Keep that in mind. Then Downard goes on here and he says, In the words of Crackerjack Kabbalist Gershom Sholem, writing in the Encyclopedia Judaica. So that was the source of that last quote. Quote. The Encyclopedia Judaica. Gershom Sholem. Let's continue on here. This sort of confabulation maunders on through thousands of cobwebby pages in hundreds of old Kabbalistic tomes, and we'll spare ourselves further details with one observation, or rather one question. But was you dear Charlie? So often asked by the skeptic in the old Baron Munchausen radio show. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. I'm not familiar with that reference. I do, I have heard of the old Baron Munchausen radio show, but I've never listened to it, and I don't know what the context of the question is there. So, this is one of Downard's attempts at humor that has gone over my head because I'm too young to understand the reference. So, maybe some of you out there would get it, but I don't. <laughs> but let's continue on at any rate. In attempting to account for the Atomic Gang's bizarre doings with Jumbo, we must look into this sort of symbolism precisely because the inner circles in those Masonic states of America are so addicted to the wacko stuff, as can be seen on any dollar bill. Possible scenario, the blasting of the Mason Jar with the nearby A-bomb flash The nearest man-made thing to the primordial light of the Sephiroth, followed by its later dismantling, may have been a dramatic reenactment of the original Kabbalist creation myth. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So this is where the rubber meets the road. This is exactly the whole point here. The creation of this container that they made for the bomb, that they never used, was intended as a recreation of the Kabbalistic creation myth. A ritual hearkening back to their creation myth. And when you understand that, you know what the true intention is here. It's about man recreating this world in which we live in a better way than the creator. It's the hubris of mankind. It's the hubris of these dark cultists who run things. It's a symbolic reshaping of the world. You see, they think they could build it better. They could build back better than what was here. Maybe you caught that little reference, or maybe you didn't, but that's a subject for another time. But that's the whole point here. So this was a representation. This was a ritual with this Trinity site, the creation of this. So regardless of... Whether you believe the bomb functions in the way as described or not is irrelevant. It's all about the esoteric meaning behind it all. That's the important matter here. Let's go ahead and continue reading and we'll wrap it up. Freemasonry is chock-full of such theatrical instant replay exercises. The tie-in of the death of the primordial kings in Sholem's last sentence will have to await our discussion of another mighty psychodrama pulled off by the cryptocracy at a different Trinity site 18 years later in 1963. And of course, he's referring to the killing of the king, the Kennedy assassination. Let's continue on. Another possibility in understanding the big jug derives from the arena of alchemy, where mysterious doings with bottles are depicted in so many old engravings. These generally are believed to center on the creation of a magical mannequin or homunculus, thought to have superhuman magical powers and usually described as forming inside a bottle or vessel of some kind. Jewish mysticism posits a similar Frankensteinian monstrosity monstrosity called the Gullum. And this would be a suggestive link with alchemical lore. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. Think back to the portion that we opened the show with here tonight, where he spoke of Adam as the Gullum of God. The Gullum. So you see This is inherent as well. It's the creation of life, the idea of creating life, mankind creating artificial life, artificial intelligence. Let's read on and we'll wrap it up. Well, much of Masonic lore is composed of hermetic, alchemical, and Jewish elements. Much of Jewish mysticism is of Egyptian, Babylonian, and Gnostic origin. The interrelations of such esoterica are easily recognized, and their hidden meanings are not really enigmatic after you have become acquainted with the inner doctrines of masonry, alchemy, and the Kabbalah. For example, the ritualistic breaking of bottles is intensely magical. The rabbi's bottle breaking, also called sheverah, routine pertains to Hebrew cosmogony and the primordial atom, symbolically shattering the jug that was the instrument of creation, designed to receive the might light of the Cosmic Masculine Feminine Principles, also known as the Sephiroth, which shone from Adam Kadmon's eyes. However, when the light did shine, it did not contain the feminine principle, according to the myth, so the bottle was broken because of the imbalance. Consequently, the jinn that were in the bottle with Adam were released, resulting in the earth being demonized, at least if we can believe Muhammad in his Quran. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So, this is a hugely important idea. The idea was that when the light shined into the container, it did not contain the feminine principle, and thus the bottle was broken because of the imbalance. And now they're attempting to reunify the feminine principle back into the bottle to recreate the vessel, the container, or at least some version thereof. That's the inference that could be made. Let's continue reading. The Shevarah rite is also associated with the croaking of the primordial kings of Edom from Genesis chapter 36. Because of another imbalance of the masculine and feminine principles... Rabbi mystics also perform a ritual called Tikkun to restore the busted Sephiroth bottle and get the powers of evil back inside. In an October 1987 television news broadcast reporting on Soviet-American arms talks, the principal topics were missiles and nuclear warheads. In his summary, the commentator remarked, quote, They are trying to return the nuclear genie to its bottle, and quote. Alas, it can't be done. It's too late, too late, too late. The damn bottle has been cracked up for keeps. So I think we're going to stop right there, folks. There's more to this, but that's about all the time we have for tonight, and we get the idea. So remember, the concept of the bottle goes very much deeper than what you may have previously thought. When you go back to these old creation stories from places like Kabbalah, this is where you come up with this idea, the genie in the bottle, the bottle, the flask, the alchemical flask that some have described this place that we live in as being. And those in positions of power, these dark occultists that run things, are attempting to break the bottle, if you wanted to go to that allegory for this wine of thinking, because that's absolutely what's been done here. That's what's being inferred in this, this type of way of thinking given here by Downard. So we have this allegorical representation here of the bottle, and the bottle is only broken to restore balance. But when the bottle was broken... It released the genie, the djinn, into the place, or the demonic forces. And that's where we're at today in this allegory as it's represented. So with that being the case, we could understand a few things a little better. And I do think Downard was way ahead of his time in much of this stuff. So that being the case, I think it's important to look at some of these lesser-known works of his... The man was full of different knowledge about the workings of these people that control this place, exposing what it is that their agendas are and what they believe. And all of this is important because when you understand who they are and the things that they do, it makes the world look clearer to you. And when we oppose those things, When we stand in opposition to these things that they want done we take back our power and we have some footing to stand on when we realize there's more of us than there are of them and that we have more of a say in things than we realize. We are more powerful than we realize. That's the whole crux of the argument here with everything even though they've weaponized many of these esoteric and occult principles against us, and used these very things in a ritualistic form to restore what they call the balance to themselves, the controlling factors of this world. We can't continue to let them get away with things, folks. We need to stand in opposition of these agendas that they keep pushing in our faces and rejecting them. Reject their agendas. And they become powerless. That's the whole point. To be made out of all of this. But just so we have a better understanding of what it is they believe and the things they do to act upon those beliefs. That's the importance here. And I think Downard had a very good grasp of this. And that's why I like to look at some of his lesser known works like this and present them in this fashion. Because let's be honest, this is probably the first you've ever heard any of this. And that's really shameful that we, as a society, we can't think outside the box. That's speaking generally, as a generalization for society itself. Most of you folks who are listening here, you've gotten beyond the 101 level of conspiracy theory and of political intrigue and corruption and all of that. We go a little bit deeper here. This is beyond the 101 course in all of this stuff. So... When you dig deep, you learn more. And the more you learn, the more you see. And the more you see, the more you feel the need to communicate it. (laughs) That's the gist of it all. And the more we communicate it and the more people become aware of it, the better we can reject their agendas and maybe make a better world for ourselves. That's the bottom line here. Anyway, that's all I have for tonight, folks. I want to thank you all for tuning in. I appreciate each and every one of you. We'll catch you next time. Have a good night now.
1: Come with me.